This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. When you look at the breakdown of bike racing in the United States, it's heavy on different geographic areas. The West Coast, obviously, the Southeast, the East Coast, the Midwest. These are the places that we often think about when you think about Criterium racing. One of the places that isn't at the top of anybody's list is Boise, and it really should be. As far as bike racing is concerned, Boise does tick all of those boxes. It's just not someplace that a lot of us get to go to or a lot of us think about. The good thing about today's episode is that we've got somebody from Boise who's going to come in and explain all of it to us. And he's going to point out to us that, yes, it is always sunny in Idaho. Today's guest is Alan Schroeder, who in 2021 will be racing on the Philadelphia-based CS Velo. His bike racing style is nothing but excitement. Rising quickly through the ranks from a Cat 5 to a Cat 1, he's lived the dream. But he's lived the dream in the Northwest, And now he's got his opportunity to take his show nationwide. And since we're talking about nationwide, let's speak about the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows, the world's only top-tier collective of independent cycling content. This creator-owned network that this show is a part of is looking for your help this year. Go to the website, wideanglepodium.com, become a member, and help support those shows that you've turned to over the course of this year to entertain and inform. And while we're talking about things that you can do on a website, whenever you head over to Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, iTunes, whatever it happens to be, like, share, and subscribe to this show. And if you really like what you are hearing these days, leave us a review. It'll help out all those others who come afterwards find the show, and we'll really appreciate it. So let's get to it with our talk here with Mr. Ambassador, Alan Schroeder. My name is Alan Schroeder, and as of 2021, I will be racing for CS Velo. You are coming to us live from Treasure Valley, yes, which I think is an incredible way to describe the city of Boise. Most of the folks who are who are listening to this show are from East Coast, the West Coast, the Midwest. None of them know anything about Boise, so... (laughs) You're you're our ambassador to the largest city in the state of Idaho. Tell us what this place is like. I mean, first and foremost, how do you pronounce it? (laughs) Right on. I mean, I think I'll start with there might be people out there who have mixed feelings about me being the ambassador for it. But yeah, so pronunciation is a big deal around here. It's how you can really tell the people who have been here and those who are new. But it's Boise, B-O-I space S-E-E. I know a lot of people like to call or the standard way of saying it is kind of Boise. And if you were to come here and say that like in stores and stuff, you'll be you'll be picked out immediately. Is the foreigner as the guy or girl who's not from southwestern Idaho for sure. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. Have you ever heard of the word shibboleth? Shibboleth? Yes. Never in my life. It is one of my favorite words, it's almost never used in, in English. It's actually a Hebrew word Ooh. that comes from the Hebrew part of the Bible. And it was a code word. It was a password. It, it literally meant the stalk of a grain, not anything that has to do with passwords or anything like that. Huh. But it became a password because certain tribes of Israel had the capacity to say shibboleth, whereas others didn't have the capacity to say it, and they would say Sibboleth. Mm. So you could instantly identify who was friend and foe because of that. The reason I bring it up is because in the Wikipedia page, <laughs> oh. which is where I've gone to <laughs> for, for this interview, mm. calling it Boise is the official Shibboleth of those people who live in the city. Oh, man. And the fact that they used that phrase in your Wikipedia page means that 
I have to say something about it. <laughs> right. Like that stands out immediately. Like that's one of those facts where it's like you either know it or you don't. So while I've got the page open here, do you know where Boise came from? Where like the, the etymology of that word is? Um, I know that it's French, I believe, or Le Bois. Le Bois is French for the trees. And I think it's just been derived from that, but I don't know if that's... There's there's two potentials that I know of, mm-hmm. but the reason I bring it up, I mean, you're totally right, the, the trees or the woods or something like that, mm-hmm. because the countryside around Boise is not exactly the most verdant and lush. It's mm-hmm. a lot of high desert, mm-hmm. but Boise itself in the valley is gorgeous. It's cottonwood trees. It's beautiful. It This is my way of segueing and saying, tell us about what that world is like in Idaho, because a lot of people just don't have the great opportunity to go there and see it themselves. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, to continue to pile on, you know, how isolated Boise is, it's like one of the most isolated metropolitan areas in the country where it's, you know, at least a six hour drive to like the next biggest city over. It is a high desert, like you mentioned, but as you go south from Boise. And then when you come into Boise, we, the city is built around the Boise River, which is a pretty substantial river, but that has allowed it to have, you know, like a lot of fertile land around. Um, So we have a lot of leafy trees, as you mentioned. And then from Boise, if you were to go north, we have foothills up into mountains. So as you head north, you get into like some really nice, like pretty densely forests, kind of your typical Northwest forest, a lot of pine trees, um, loam on the ground, stuff like that. So it really is kind of an oasis as you're driving through Southwest or South Idaho, which for the most part is just desert. And I think that's what, you know, draws a lot of people here. What drew you to Idaho? Because you're originally from Washington State. Yeah, Spokane. As opposed to Washington, D.C. So, <laughs> you know, like I got to be careful. And even that that's funny that you mentioned that because even like my freshman year at Boise State, I got asked all the time, like, oh, Washington, D.C.? So I like learned to, you know, specify, oh, yeah, I'm from Washington State, which kind of blew my mind because, I mean, like Idaho and Washington, they're right next to each other. I couldn't understand why people's like automatic thought on that was that it was going to be Washington, D.C. You ended up coming to Boise State from Spokane to do mm-hmm. what? I mean, to to enjoy bluegrass uh, on that field <laughs> or, you know, what is it? How How did you get there? Yeah. uh, I mean, to be honest, like until my senior year of high school, I did not even know Boise State existed Um, and I didn't know about their blue turf. But once I started looking for colleges and I ran cross country in high school, so I got recruited to Boise State. So that was kind of my first intro to Boise was when I came here for a visit. But yeah, I mean, it was obviously a very nice city. The school is a good size. It's on it's small, but pretty tight knit and the campus is nice. So yeah, I guess long story short, I came to Boise to run track and cross country. So all of those nice things that we just talked about people kind of like winning people over were kind of secondary to just the schooling aspect of it for me. I mean, I went to Kansas. I I left Chicago (laughs) and went to Lawrence, Kansas, and I fell in love with Lawrence, Kansas, but Mm -hmm. I ended up leaving. You didn't. You stuck around. Yes. What was it that keeps somebody in Boise? Ah, why did I stay in Boise? I mean, to be honest, when I graduated college, graduated from Boise State, like leaving Boise was never really even a thing that entered my mind. I guess, you know, I got a job right out of school and Zach and Sawyer, my two friends, you know, they graduated a couple years before me and they both were still here. But I mean, even besides that, it's just the lifestyle that you get to live when you're in Boise is just so good, especially as someone who, you know, enjoys outdoor activities. It's just whether it's cycling or hiking, camping, backpacking, floating the river, fly fishing, you know, skiing, snowboarding, like just all these things all year long we have access to. And at most, they're all, you know, like a two hour drive away. So, yeah, it was just never even a question that I was going to stay here. And skiing, apparently at Sun Valley, I've been alerted to the Mm. fact that that's Mm -hmm. a pretty dramatic place. Yeah, dramatically beautiful. So that is, again, just a couple hours, two hours from Boise, and it's in the Sawtooth Mountain Range, which is just this like big kind of, I would almost describe it as like raw mountainous terrain, where it's just like a lot of rocks and steep, well, 
steep pointy mountains, which is where they get the name, the saw teeth, saw tooth mountains from. So if people are starting to notice your attention to natural detail in the course of this interview here, (laughs) I I think it it bears mentioning what you do for a profession now. Uh, I'm currently working as a transportation engineer or a roadway engineer. So what is somebody who, you know, because we're all weird, we're all bike racers, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and we get obsessed with something and, and we just follow it to the nth, it seems so logical, I guess, that somebody who loves bike riding and being outdoors would be attracted to engineering, mm-hmm. at least with roadway design. What led you down that path? Um, Well, that is kind of a long story, but the short of it is... My intention was to go more into city planning, but when I was a teenager, I didn't really realize what that city planning and roadway design are like two completely different things. So yeah, I ended up getting a civil engineering degree, went into roadway design, and then realized that, oh, this is really just like, you know, alignments of road and the composition of pavement and such, but it doesn't have much to do with the actual planning out of cities and where the roads are going to go. But it was kind of a happy accident where um, the job I have now, I really enjoy. And sorry, I got off on a tangent there and started rambling. Tangents are perfectly acceptable on this show. I think that's actually the subtitle of the show, Criterium Nation presented by Tangents. There are these types of pavement and road out there that suck all of your energy out from underneath your legs. And then you get out there on a freshly paved piece of blacktop Mm -hmm. and it feels like you're floating as the guy who is in charge or helps design these things do you ever just get infuriated when you come across a really poorly built piece of road (laughs) yes all the time well and so boise is pretty notorious or at least the like highway department around here is pretty notorious for just chip sealing everything Um, And as a roadway designer, I know that for the most part, they're doing that just because like they have budget left over at the end of the year that they need to burn through. So like, okay, cool. We'll just go through and like chip seal this road, this road, this road. And more often than not, it's like the roads that the cyclists in the area ride all the time. So you get like this nice, smooth, awesome pavement, and then they just dump a bunch of gravel on top of it. Explain to us because, you know, some of us know what chip and seal is. Some of us live in the South and have no clue what chips chip and seal is. What is that process like? Um, I mean, the process of actually chip sealing a road. Yeah. Um, it's not too complicated. Basically, they'll lay down a layer of glue, essentially. And then they like industrial glue. And then they'll dump a bunch of gravel on top of that, grade it out. So it's even by no means smooth, but it's nice and even across the roadway. And then they give that some time to like compact down and then they'll just put a sealant over the top of that to make it, you know, roadway color and a little more durable in weather. And so you end up with these stretches of road that are basically compounded gravel Mm -hmm. that you're riding on and it's 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 a pretend pavement. Yes, exactly. And I mean, it's there are gravel roads in Boise that are smoother than the chip seal roads that we have to give you an idea of how how kind of bumpy it can be when you're on your road bike. What is it about Boise that draws so many bike racers? Because you wouldn't think that naturally it would be this Mountain West mecca for bike racing, but Christian Armstrong is there, Nicola Kramer is there. You've got an incredible set of races like the Chrono, Kristen Armstrong, and the Boise Twilight. Why are all mm-hmm. these bike racers drawn to this particular area? That is a great question. And yeah, when I first got into cycling, I didn't realize like how big of kind of like not necessarily a culture, but just like group of cyclists here that there were. But I think it is honestly just because of the riding that is available to you around here. I mean, there is the weather aspect of it's pretty much sunny, like all year round. We really don't have that harsh of winters, but we do have just excellent training facilities for lack of a better term. You know, if you're just looking to ride flat roads, for instance, you can go out into the desert and be on flat roads for four hours straight and see like very few cars. We also have Bogus Basin Road, which is a 16 mile road climb. 
that climbs from about 2,500 feet up to 6,500 feet. So that in itself, I mean, and that road is named after Kristen Armstrong, you know, after, I think it was probably after the second Olympic gold that she won. But then in addition to things that are in town, again, like you can go an hour north and be riding up in Cascade, Idaho, which is at elevation and just has like endless dirt roads and just kind of backcountry roads where you're not going to run into very many vehicles. And it's just like the most scenic riding you've ever done. Clearly, we've got a lot of great riding. Do we've got a lot of people who do the riding there nowadays? To be honest, it's, it's slimming down around here. We're having a hard time kind of keeping interest in at least road racing specifically alive. But when it comes to kind of the broader aspect of cycling, like there is there are large groups of people that, you know, are here for the gravel roads for just kind of, you know, general fitness. And there are a lot of people in Boise that use cycling as, you know, their main uh, form of transportation. So it is a pretty inviting community when you look at it, you know, kind of blown up on a bigger scale of cycling as a whole versus kind of just for sport. Why do you think it is that the road side of it has kind of dwindled over the last couple of years? You know, I'm I'm not sure. I think part of it is, you know, just due to like bike companies putting a lot more emphasis on kind of gravel riding and really pushing that their new gravel bikes and kind of that culture of cycling. I mean, I know just from, I guess, kind of anecdotally general um, observation around town, like everybody has a gravel bike these days. Like if you see someone just kind of like cruising around town more often than they're not, they're on a gravel bike. So I think that's kind of been a big portion of it, but yeah, I'm not hundred percent sure to be honest. Well, let's switch gears here and talk about you and road racing. So it's our little segue here. You came to the world of being an athlete from running track and cross country. Mm -hmm. Why is it that track cross country runners have such this tendency to become awe inspiring jaw dropping, monsters on the bike as opposed to people like me who were swimmers you know <laughs> i don't think you necessarily need to answer that question but if you got an answer i'm, I'm all ears so <laughs> yeah why do runners make such good cyclists you know this is actually something that i've been asked a lot over the years and like especially when i first made the switch over to road riding and i think part of it is just because people want you to tell them that you know being a runner is giving me some sort of advantage i think not necessarily to make them feel better about the fact that they're getting smoked from someone who is or getting smoked by someone who has only been riding bikes for a year but that's not the point i think a big part of it i mean there's definitely a little bit that comes from runners are fairly obsessive when it comes to training kind of in a in a good way that keeps them really consistent especially you know like competitive runners are pretty pretty obsessive to stay consistent with their training so you know when you move over to cycling and almost it whatever sport you're doing you know being consistent is going to help you improve quickly and you know rise up pretty quickly regardless of what it is but i think another big part of it is also you know like running hurts like <laughs> running races hurt from the gun uh, so you get really not comfortable, but like used to that last lactic acid burn. And I think, you know, runners just are pretty used to dealing with that. So when they jump into cycling, you know, it's like not unfamiliar territory for them. And I think, you know, you also get used to being completely red, redlined and just like out of your mind, but still, you know, being aware, like being able to function within the race. So when you make that transition to cycling, you know, especially when you're racing crits in the last 10 laps, you are totally pinned, you're redlined, and but you still need to be like aware and make these split second decisions based off of like, you know, what's going on in the race around you. So coming from a track and field background, I mean, that's exactly what basically all track races are. So that I think isn't maybe an advantage, but it's just something that all cyclists or all runners are used to. So when they get into those situations in cycling, they're ready to handle it. How did you do it? How did you come to this sport from being a track runner in college? That's a good question. I guess I discovered I, 
fixed gear bikes when I was in college, my freshman year of college, I got a fixed gear bike and that was pretty much what I used for transportation all throughout college. And I, you know, I dove really deep into like that kind of culture, even when I was running. And then midway through college, I discovered cyclocross. So it was maybe 2014. I was the first time that I ever knew cyclocross existed. And that was through the CX hairs, like Svenness videos. And those like Svenness was good for bill. Yeah, it was real good. I mean, yeah. those videos, I, I would be in the library, like supposed to be studying or doing homework, but I would end up spending like literally two to three hours because they were like five seasons worth of Svenness. By the time I discovered it, I, fully dove in to cyclocross after that. And, you know, coming from a cross country background, it's like, oh, like they're running with their bikes in this. Like I could totally do that. So then once my running career came to an end and I was looking for something to do, you know, I was still like very competitive. I still, you know, like wanted to train and wanted to have goals and like sport goals and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, I went out, the first bike I purchased was a cross bike and started doing some local cross races. And that was kind of the beginning of it all. Pulling up your results when you did finally decide that road bikes were cool as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. You are the type of person that a lot of us just really hate, for lack of a better word. <laughs> sure. I mean, you you spent a weekend as a Cat 5. Yeah, one right. race as a Cat 4. You probably would have been a Cat 2 by the end of your first year, but it looks like winter intervened. And, and kept you as a cat three. But then again, when the next year started, you know, you, you do the tour to bloom and you, you absolutely destroy it and you get upgraded to a cat two. And by the end of your second season, you're racing Chico as a cat one. <laughs> yeah. What do you think it is that allowed you to excel so quickly? Because I mean, these are not easy races. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're racing Cascade, you're racing the tour of Walla Walla, you know, you're racing like legitimate races with big fields, but you're, you're, you're kicking their butts. Right. (laughs) I mean, I don't know about kicking butts, but I was able to, you know, hang in there for sure. I guess towards the front of the group, maybe. Yeah. Just a, just a little bit towards the front of the group. And Mm -hmm. and the fact that you like were on the podium a lot, (laughs) Locally, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But what, you know, what was it that kind of, how did this click with you so well? Yeah, I, I guess I'm not sure. You know, I've never, to be honest, I've never really thought about it all that much. So I guess I was just generally a competitive person and had some good fitness coming off of those running years. So I guess I had confidence that like, you know, like I'm a good athlete, like these are also good athletes, but I know like I should be able to compete with them. So, yeah, it was just never really a question of like, I don't know, backing down, I suppose. It looks like the first time you actually ran into a situation where you were racing maybe a little bit over your head was Redlands. Yes. In 2018. Redlands is obviously a massive race. Mm -hmm. The best pros in the country come to that race. And there you are as a newly minted cat one racing against some of the best guys out there. What was that experience like? (laughs) That was definitely, I don't want to say a wake up call, but just like definitely a reality check kind of like put me in my place a little bit. Cause you know, like you mentioned, like I was racing cascade. I was doing like, obviously racing well training, like what I thought at the time was a good amount I was like, okay, cool. Like, I'm definitely like, I know I'm in good shape. I'm going to go to Redlands. Like, I'm obviously not going to win it. I had no kind of misconceptions about that, but I thought I was going to be able to hang for sure. And then you get there and you realize like, oh, oh, these guys are on a whole different level than what I'm doing. I think a big part of that was like at the time going into Redlands, I was riding or training maybe like 10 to 12 hours a month or excuse me, a week. Which coming from running, that's, you know, about doing 10 to 12 hours of running a week, you're doing like 80 to 90 miles and that's significant, but like that does not translate to cycling. So yeah, uh, I went there, you know, I was able to hang pretty well on the first stage. Like I didn't lose the lead group until the final climb. But then after that, it was just like all downhill. Like 
between the heat and just the pace of every race, it just like my legs imploded basically on stage two and there was no coming back. What did you learn from that experience? Because clearly the hallmark of a good athlete is somebody who learns more from his, you know, butt kickings Mm -hmm. than he necessarily does from victory. So this is the first time that, you know, you really, you know, got your butt kicked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What did you, I mean, let's just be honest. (laughs) I'd get my butt kicked here too. But what is it that, you know, you took from this sort of experience? Um, Yeah. I mean, I think more so than even just like, I need to train more, uh, was just kind of, you know, how everything operated at stage races of that level. I mean, people are very focused, very intense, and you really kind of have to match that that level of focus if you want to be successful. Um, so when it came to, you know, just having everything organized and being prepared on race days, like basically after that weekend, Chris and I, Coach Chris and Arnold from Source Endurance, <laughs> we started really focusing. Excellent, excellent <laughs> plug, excellent plug. Yeah. Uh, we started really focusing on like more process-based goals, essentially. Like, you know, we were getting the training side sorted out. I was, you know, like bumping it up as I could fit in with work. So all that was, you know, more or less dialed in, but focusing on the process goals of like, you know, not scrambling to get like your shoe and shoes together and your kit and make sure everything's pinned, you know, an hour before the race, but having all of that ready, having time to have breakfast and a coffee and just stuff like that, because I am generally a scatter-minded person. And uh, maybe even easily distracted. <laughs> so, yeah, really focusing on that uh, was the biggest takeaway of that whole weekend, other than just like how damn fast those guys are. How has it changed for you? Because you've, you've excelled and succeeded since that first experience with Redlands. But what is the thing within the confines of these processes that you and Kristen you know, kind of came together and built up that you attribute to being one of the or some of the hallmarks to your current successes? So the biggest thing for me was definitely kind of my time management, being someone who is frequently procrastinating um, and saving things for the for the last minute. I would also, when I would do that for races, I would end up kind of burning a lot of nervous energy. So getting to focus on these process goals and you know, like exactly what the morning of the race is going to be like, like I'm going to eat, I'm going to pack, I'm going to have a coffee, like all that basically up to the start of the race. That gives me something to focus on other than being nervous for the race, which in the past, even when I was running nerves, getting the better of me was really my biggest kind of downfall. So yeah, having something to focus on other than being nervous and what's going to happen in this race has been pretty big for me. Okay, so I have the same problem, and I think a lot of people have the same problem of being scatterbrained when it comes to race day. And you sit there for a week or two before the race, dialing in your training, making sure that you know who's going to be there at the race and all of this stuff. And then you get to the race and you've forgotten basic things. Like you just, you just like completely lose focus to the fact that, oh, wait, I needed to bring water bottles. What are, what are some of the the ways that you've you know helped yourself break these things down like specifics? Do you have lists? Do you have, you know, like a punch sheet? Do you have the bag that you lay out the night before that has two pairs of shoes and you know your Wahoo strap and everything put in all the pockets so you can't forget it the next day? Yeah, I guess a little bit of all of that to be honest. Um I have multiple lists, uh, checklists, depending on like, am I traveling for this race? Like, am I in a hotel beforehand? Is it a road race? Is it a cross race? Like, is it a cold day? Is it a warm day? Um, I have lists, checklists for all of this. So I know exactly what I'm going to bring, which does is kind of all based on experience. But then I also really try and focus on packing the night before. I find that, you know, if I leave my packing to the morning of, I'm going to forget something. Like a hundred percent of the time I have forgotten something, luckily never anything like hypercritical, but I've forgotten something that I wanted to have that would make the race, you know, easier, better, whatever. So packing the night before has also been a big one for me. 
Okay, so what's the worst thing that you've ever forgotten? I'll share a story right now so that we can both equally be embarrassed. <laughs> okay. I went to the Richmond Road Race about four years ago, uh, and I got to the race, and I realized that I had forgotten my pair of bibs. Oh, no. <laughs> For some odd reason, I had packed my wife's bibs. We We had these custom properties on the Potomac, which is my wife's company that she owns, bibs that were made by Cutaway. Mm -hmm. And the only way you could tell the difference between the two was that the chamois and hers were pink and the chamois and mine were blue. And sure enough, I'm getting ready. And by God, I had packed her stuff. Oh, man. I mean, at least you weren't completely out on bibs. You still had something. (laughs) (laughs) I also completely ran out of food in that race, Mm -hmm. which was super embarrassing, too. But uh, thankfully, there was a massive rainstorm that came through and cut the race short by like 25 miles. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Yeah. So now that I've embarrassed the living heck out of myself, and I'll probably edit this part completely out. So it's just all on you. (laughs) Just a big jump there. Yeah. Yeah. What is the worst thing that you've forgotten? Um, well, I think the worst thing I've ever forgotten was actually my second race ever. I forgot my helmet. So I was, you know, running around the parking lot. It was just like asking everybody, like, do you have an extra helmet? Do you have an extra helmet? But luckily, since I was, you know, four or five at the time, I got one of my friends in the upper category to, to just loan it to me. Actually, a funnier story that isn't necessarily something I forgot the morning of i was in new york two years ago for a cross race and it had snowed like seven inches the thursday before the the race weekend so you were in buffalo i'm guessing or rochester um oh shoot it's it was close to buffalo um it was at rockland community college yeah but it was november and it was very cold but by Saturday morning or Saturday, the race day, the course was just like a complete mud pit the entire way through. So by the end of the race, everybody had just completely worn through all of their brake pads. And come Sunday morning, literally everybody at that race, at least everybody who didn't have spare brake pads, was going around the parking lot asking every other racer if they had extra brake pads to loan out. Well, since we're talking about grabbing people's attention... You are starting next year going to be racing for CS Velo, mm-hmm. which is not a Boise team. Not even close. <laughs> how how did you grab the attention of a team out of Philadelphia? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I think I actually had a lot of help on that front from a man or from Tad, who is going to be the team director for this year. He has been the team director for actually teams that Kristen has been on, as well as he was the director for the Supermint team, the women's team last year. And he is from Boise. So he's, you know, part of that kind of solid Boise cycling crowd. Yeah. So he's been a bit of kind of a mentor for me as I was getting into road cycling and coming up through the ranks. Uh, So he, you know, has been there from day one and has watched as I progressed and kind of, I guess, the drive that I had. And then when he was going to be um, a director for a domestic elite team, he immediately brought up my name to to the team owners. So I don't necessarily know that I grabbed their attention as much as he kind of directed it to me um, being over here. One of the things that I, I didn't know about CS Velo until I started doing some research for the story was what CS actually stands for. Right. I, I it it's a and it's a, an incredible story. What do you know about that story? I guess to be honest, I I know very little about the story. I know that the CS is stands for combined strength. Um but I'm yeah, not sure where that is derived from. According and and this is this comes to somewhat of relevance in a second. So according to the CS Velo website, and their mission statement, Combined Strength, the CS and CS Velo, is a reference to Luke Bunting, who was one of the organizers for the the team, in a way of honoring his father, who was at that time battling cancer. And Luke would put his dad's name on his jersey so that he could show his father, who was, you know, 
going through treatment, that he was going to be strong for him and that he would carry his father's name with him wherever he rode. Mm-hmm. That has passed on to the rest of the team who can, if they want to, put names on their jersey for people that they're being strong for. And when you look through the roster of people who are on the team, and it's not a huge team. Let's let's be really straight with that. Yeah, not at all. There's there's a bio, and each bio says, who am I riding for? For you, you are riding for the city of Boise. Yes. Why did you choose that? When I was thinking, you know, and I went through and I was reading the bios before I filled out my information to see what the other guys had said. And a lot of them do have people who, you know, have struggled with cancer or some sort of illness that, you know, they really carry that strength for. I have been lucky enough in my life to have a fairly healthy family kind of all around. So I chose the city of Boise just because they have been or like the cycling community around Boise has been incredibly supportive when it comes to kind of my ambitions as a cyclist, what my goals are, especially since, you know, getting into the sport late, I'm a little bit older. So it, it, it almost is like a silly pursuit to be a 28 year old trying to, to achieve something in cycling. But, you know, they have supported me hundred percent every step of the way. And I just really want to do my best to, you know, when I ride, ride for Boise and give a good name to the Boise cycling community. I do have to point out here that you list as your favorite post-race food, Mm -hmm. burgers and fries. Yeah. Well, I can't disagree with that. (laughs) I do want to point you to the name on the leg on your bibs. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You guys are sponsored by District Taco. And since you're from Boise, you're not from Washington, D.C., which is the home of District Taco. I'm going to ask you, have you ever had it? I have not. I mean, that's very high up on my to-do list next time that I'm in the D.C. area. But at this point, I have not. The good thing is they've also got locations in Pennsylvania as well, in Philadelphia. Okay. And they have this thing, a, a item on their menu called the Papas Gordas. Papas Gordas. Okay. It is French fries and fried cheese and your choice of, of protein it is the exact opposite of healthy, but it is so incredibly gorgeous. Osiris Hoyle, the owner, founder of District Taco, is a friend of the show. Mm-hmm. He He's actually local here to D.C., and he's got this incredibly inspiring story of, you know, coming to the United States from the U- Yucatan and losing his job in construction and finding a second chance or a second start through a food truck. Mm. And I find it to be very interesting and, and somewhat inspiring. The company that had actually let him go as a construction worker, once he made his money and was able to start his business, he hired them. Oh, man. To build his store. That's in- here in, in Virginia. Wow. You know, looking at the other guys who are on this team, you know, you've got Sean, the gardener uh, himself, and you've got Taylor Warren and Will Cooper and, and Pat Collins. And there's just like this group of guys who I'm not sure. Have you had the opportunity to to really engage with them yet? Um, Not as much as I would have liked, obviously, like with COVID going on, been everyone has been pretty much stuck at home. So really the only interactions I've had with them have been through Zoom meetings, um, team Zoom meetings. But yeah, I mean, or a couple of them, like you mentioned, Patrick Collins and Andrew Ginyant. Sorry, Andrew, don't know how to pronounce your last name. I've raced them and crossed a little bit. So, you know, I've, I've interacted with them a bit more, but yeah, they seem like like a great group of guys. And I'm definitely looking forward to getting a chance to get everybody together all in the same place and go for some rides. How do you intend, you know, coming from out West, dealing with a lot of or riding with a lot of guys here who are on the East coast, you know, Will Gleason's from Pennsylvania. Sean is from Richmond. Andrew is from, it, it looks like Asheville, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. 
even though he seems to have some connection with my hometown in Chicago. Yeah, how do you plan on basically bringing yourself into this organization that already exists? How do you make yourself part of this team? Oh, man. That's a good question. I mean, I think it's it's only going to come through, you know, kind of face-to-face interaction. You can only kind of make so much, so much of a connection through Zoom meetings. So I think it, it's really just going to come down to spending spending some time with them, you know, going for rides. Rides are a really great chance to, you know, talk with someone, get to know them. You have, you know, three, four, five, six hours to, to just chat with a person and then yeah, I guess try and try and make some sort of shared life connection. Are you at all afraid that you're going to run out of things to say? I think I'm more of a listener than a talker. So I will certainly run out of things to say, but as long as they, they've been, you know, in like this domestic elite cycling world a lot longer than I have. So I'm sure I'll have plenty of questions to ask them. A lot of like interested in hearing their war stories especially when it comes to getting to do races like pronats and stuff like that i'm sure i will have plenty of questions to to pepper them with so at the end of the day they'll probably actually be a little bit sick of me i don't think anybody ever gets sick of somebody who asks questions that hark and ask them for their experience and advice because as i've come to learn advice is basically just a different version of nostalgia Mm -hmm. so it's just a way of reliving your past but you know, you bring up a point about pronats and, you know, bigger races. You on the roadside have been pretty limited to races out in Idaho, the Pacific Northwest, some in California. What are the races that you're looking forward to doing that is that are outside of that comfort zone for you? All of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I really just love racing my bike kind of at the core of it. Like, that's why I'm still doing this and still trying to like progress. It's just because I love to race. So, this is a great opportunity to get to go and do, you know, some of the, the big PRT stage races like Joe Martin. <clears throat> um, yeah, super excited to have the chance to do Redlands again. And then basically a full USA Crits series is going to be amazing. I mean, every every single stop on that that calendar just looks like it's the most fun race you've ever done and like every single one always has you know big crowds at it um some are twilight some during the day uh yeah i mean it's hard to pick just one and obviously like tulsa tough if you're like a crit racer is the top of the the mountain getting to go and do the tulsa tough weekend so what do you think it's going to be like for you lining up in that first time at the Riverside Park crit at the famous Crybaby Hill on the Sunday at Tulsa Tough? What do you think that's going to be like? <laughs> I mean, I'm already super excited for it. I think I'm going to be standing on that line, like definitely nervous out of my mind, like probably shaking a little bit, but also just like so rare and to go. That course looks super fun not terribly technical necessarily, but like fast downhill turns, like a super punchy climb. Like that is just like my wheelhouse for sure. Like, and like as big of crowds as Boise Twilight Grit has, like Crybaby Hill just looks insane. And I'm looking forward to kind of like coming around the turn into the, just like that wall of noise that it has. And yeah, that looks like a otherworldly experience almost. One thing I've noticed is that you have never DNF'd on the road once my second ever race but yeah since then yeah are you i i mean you're going to be the new guy on the team and you're going to have assignments and jobs that need to get done i know that for a lot of people a dnf is kind of a thing that they they fear more than anything else and sometimes they don't race aggressively enough or they don't race enough to do their job because they're afraid of the dnf right are you ready to to make that sacrifice? Are you ready to say, you know what, Sean, today's your day. Mm-hmm. I'm going all in for you and I don't care what happens to me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, honestly, I'm looking forward to, I guess, having those opportunities to like more or less. I mean, I don't want to say sacrifice my own race because that's absolutely not what it is, but you know, the last four years I've been racing more or less like as an individual, <clears throat> I, you know, I've had 
teammates, but at these bigger races, I'm always just kind of on my own. So being on a team and, you know, saying, okay, we're racing for this person today is yeah, just something that I'm excited to do. So when it, if it comes or when my day comes that I'm the one that has to go and sit on the front and pull something back or just smash it to break up the group, like, yeah, that's going to be awesome. I look forward, <laughs> I look forward to that almost more than any other racing I've done to this point. You know, heading here towards the, the closing part of, of this interview, how has this pandemic been for you? Because I mean, this was going to be a big year for you. All of them are mm-hmm. at this point in time, yeah. but having to sit it out, having to sit here and basically let all of that nervous energy build up. How have you been dissipating that? Yeah. Um, this might be a long answer. Definitely coming into this year, you know, kind of the March, April timeframe, like I was in the best shape of my life, or at least of my cycling life. Like power numbers were great. Just well, I guess that's really the only metric, but I was, I was flying for sure. So I was super excited to get into it. And my whole thing coming into this year was like, I want to win races, like everything in the Northwest. I don't want to just go and like do well. Like I want to start winning, winning races. And as things progressed, like pretty quickly realized that, you know, racing this year is not going to happen. And I think I was able to kind of like make that concession pretty up pretty early on and just accept like, all right, 2020 is going to be a year of no racing. You know, for the first couple of months, did the same thing as most people went out and crushed like every Strava KOM I could find. Yeah, uh, I actually got kind of sick. Um, it's in the May time frame, which took me off the bike for a while. And then after that, you know, I was really already sort of looking on to, to 2021 being like, all right. This year, racing's not going to happen. I might as well just sort of focus on doing a big year of build, basically, and putting in mileage. So, yeah, at least on the on the bike front, I was able to burn off a lot of it with kind of early acceptance and just enjoying, you know, going for long rides and doing a little bit more exploring of Idaho than than what I've done before. Um, you know, trying to get out of Boise to do some rides. What about? off the bike, you know, as far as your own mental, emotional well-being, how have you managed to say stay so positive throughout the course of this year? Well, I've probably been in a small group of people who have been extremely lucky to make a pretty seamless transition to just working from home. I think I started working from home in March and have done so through this whole year. So that has been a good outlet to kind of focus a lot of of energy kind of brain energy is just focusing on work but then also it opened up a huge opportunity to do a little more exploring in the northwest and i've gotten it than i've been able to do previously where you know just going a lot of weekends camping up in central idaho and a big one actually was i went for the first like vacation of my adult life this last week week and a half over in cannon beach oregon Uh, with my girlfriend, Emily. Our last night there, Thanksgiving night, we were sitting on the beach, having a barbecue, having a fire. And I had the realization like, A, this is awesome. Like this is probably one of the best moments of 2021 or 2020. But the only reason it was able to happen almost was because of this pandemic. Like otherwise I would be focused on some sort of racing. So yeah, I guess just the opportunity to really kind of not worry about bikes at all has also been what keeps you or has kept me kind of like grounded and yeah, just aware of everything that's going on. As a wrap up here, how ready are you to wear pink when you line up for your next race? Oh man, super excited. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, a very nice amount of pink. It's not like a full pink jersey or anything like that. So I think the the CS Velo kits are some of the best looking kits in the Peloton, to be honest. They're very classic looking. They're very understated. So definitely looking forward to it. And they're easy to spot, for sure. They are. Yeah, they stand out. Especially when you're off the front. <laughs> yeah, give it'll make Frankie's job much easier. Well, Alan, thank you absolutely so much for being on the show. And we are for sure going to be following along with you as 2021 gets going. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, This was great.
Thanks for joining us on another episode of Criterium Nation, a proud member of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. Today's show was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. If you want more cycling content, head on over to the website, criteriumnation.com. And don't forget to check out all the other shows on the Wide Angle Podium, Cyclocross Radio, the Slow Ride Podcast, Bike Shop CX, the Consummate Athlete, the Gravel Lot, Nowhere Fast. There's just so much stuff on the network for you to enjoy and listen to during these trainer ride time period of the year or the long base mile time period of the year, depending on whether or not you're willing to go out. And come on back next week where we'll tell more stories from our Criterium Nation. As you know, materials in cyclocross are very important. What do you think, Mr. Svennis? It's uh, very important to have the good material when it's frozen, when it's dry, when it's summer, when it's, uh, when it's wet. Uh, the tires are very important. It's all about technique. It's all about uh, the good material. So we brought the Bike Shop Show back with a cyclocross focus. Same great format, new name, Bike Shop CX. Give it a listen. I think you'll dig it. Each week, Mr. David Palin and I talk about things that go on at our bike shop. We talk about things that go on in the pro cyclocross pit at all the big races around the country. Sometimes we have industry-leading guests on the show. Sometimes it's just the two of us yapping. If you're at all interested in cyclocross, I think you'll like it. The bike shop is open.